Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law from Northville, Michigan. And today we interrupt your parade of very serious topics, fraud, criminal activity, international relations, war, to talk just about one of the biggest deals in the history of the video game industry. And of course, I'm talking about Microsoft's pending acquisition of Activision, which we're going to be 14 videos deep on in the playlist Microsoft Times Activision. And more specifically, I'm talking about the regulatory environment in which Microsoft finds itself. Now, if you've watched this playlist, you've watched my videos on this topic, you probably already know this, but some commenters come into my videos and say, effectively, there's no chance that regulators are going to come in and do anything about Microsoft purchasing Activision. And I've given the percentage chance in various of these videos that I say, hey, I think it's about an 80-20 chance that the deal goes through in materially the same way that we're expecting. That Microsoft might agree to some kind of settlement around the edges, which is technically the FTC or the DOJ telling them they'll block the deal if they don't. But that at the end of the day, I think 80% of the time we're going to see a deal that goes through relatively as we expect it to. But there is a material chance that it doesn't. That's the 20% side of things. And I've said that in these videos because of the very specific moment we find ourselves in with a Biden administration, an FTC, and a DOJ that have expressed that they want to be more aggressive with antitrust law and antitrust regulation, and specifically be more aggressive against technology companies. It's in that environment that a number of advocacy groups have actually written to the FTC with a very benign request, but reading between the lines, actually a very serious one. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So to start out with, we're actually going to do this a little bit in reverse. We're going to look at the signatories to this letter so that we get a kind of feel for what they are about. This letter was published uh, through an advocacy group called Public Citizen. They describe themselves as a nonprofit consumer advocacy organization that champions the public interest in the halls of power. Their tagline here is, corporations have their lobbyists in Washington, D.C. The people need advocates too. So just without looking any further, we can kind of characterize this as a company that is very suspect of the power wielded by corporations. One might also say that they're anti-corporation, uh, but giving the benefit of the doubt, they're just very suspect of the way corporations operate. And I think a lot of you that find yourselves in virtual legality are too. They further describe themselves as saying, we defend democracy, we resist corporate power, and we work to ensure that government works for people, not big corporations. We don't participate in partisan political activities or endorse any candidates for elected office. And if you need some experts to explain how corporate influence in a policy area affects people, we can help. Now, these appear to be the leaders, the leading group uh, behind the letter we're going to talk about today. You can see on the timeline that they present, they have various victories here. Uh, they uh, talked about the WTO's waiver to boost vaccine access, the Clean Water Act, and you can go uh, back to, I believe it's 1971, and see how they've operated OSHA stuff, uh, suspending Trump's rule, imposing immigration fees, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's kind of the context that we look at this letter through. And you see then this whole big group of various advocacy organizations that have signed this letter to the FTC about Microsoft and Activision, ostensibly just a video game company that publishes video games and has been pretty successful at it for a long time. We've got Public Citizen, which we just talked about, the Center for Digital Democracy, Communications Workers of America, 
which is an odd bit of entry. And, and if you think it's odd, I do too. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit more at length when we get there. The Repair Association, Public Knowledge, American Economic Liberties Project, the Revolving Door Project, National Employment Law Project, the Open Markets Institute, Towards Justice, People's Parity Project, Project seems to be a common name for these kinds of things, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, the Main Street Alliance, Fight for the Future, and Demand Progress Education Fund. We are not, blessedly, going to go through the About Us pages on all of these, but we can put them into certain buckets because we're going to see those buckets represented in a letter that they wrote to the FTC. One of the major of these buckets is effectively that the merger shouldn't be allowed because there's too much concentration in power and they're very big advocates for not having concentrations of power. Here at the American Economic Liberties Project about page, we see them describe themselves as we wanted to help translate the intellectual victories of the anti-monopoly movement into momentum towards concrete, wide-ranging policy changes that begin to address today's crisis of concentrated economic power. Economic Liberties is led by Sarah Miller, and it's relatively new. It says it launched in February of 2020, who served as the deputy director of the Open Markets Institute, which we also saw referenced on this letter, so there's a combination there, and has been recognized as one of the primary architects of the modern antitrust movement. This is the kind of thought that is motivating the speeches we see from Lena Khan at the FTC, some of the speeches we see from the Biden administration. This is important stuff because the politicians in the United States are listening to groups like this, folks like this. Working together with a growing network of allies, we call on the government to reassert essential policy tools like aggressive investigatory agendas, which is actually what we're going to be talking about in this letter, robust antitrust enforcement, anti-corruption measures, corporate accountability, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the group of people that are mostly against transactions, mergers and acquisitions of all kinds and want to see the government be more aggressive in saying no. We saw some references to this in various aspects of the halls of power here in the United States in Congress saying effectively, false positives are better than false negatives, that we want to over-enforce antitrust rules because it's easier to deal with the two companies than figuring out that we were wrong after the fact. And that's going to be a philosophical position. I have my own thoughts on these kinds of things. I'm sure that you do too, but it is motivating what we are seeing right now. And some of the other groups we see, here's the Main Street Alliance, have a similar kind of bent. Main Street Alliance representing smaller businesses. Uh, founded by small business leaders in 2008, organizes small businesses around issues that matter most for businesses, employees, and the community they serve. MSA aims to build a powerful, self-funded, multiracial, small business membership organization that can shift our economic narrative, wield political power, and win policy reform for small business owners, employees, and communities. So very similar to kind of the generalized aggressive antitrust enforcement. Of course, small businesses look at large businesses, and certainly there are very few that are larger than Microsoft, and say that presents an existential problem for us, so we're going to advocate for certain things. Certainly understandable, but we can take and evaluate the tilts of these various organizations and establish the proper size of the grain of salt we should have when we read these things. Outside of that, we then get into separate concerns, which I'm going to call silly, in this context, not because they don't represent potentially valid positions and certainly good ones for the folks that back these kinds of organizations up, but silly in the context of what the FTC is actually looking at here, which we will, of course, talk about in the legal section while we look at the letter itself. But here's the Center for Digital Democracy. 
They apparently look to ensure that digital technologies serve and strengthen democratic values, institutions, and processes. Almost sounds like an election law kind of thing. Uh, They have a couple of bullets here. They want to make sure that they foster privacy, justice, and non-discriminatory treatment. They want to safeguard young people against unfair, manipulative, and other harmful practices. They want to promote responsible commercial data and digital marketing operations and ensure that digital marketing practices contribute to fair and equitable public health outcomes. So that's kind of a broad ranging ambit. But I've put this in the bucket of being concerned about data, being concerned about privacy, public health uh, concepts, private health information, because we will see a paragraph in the letter that talks about these things. Similarly, you've got public knowledge. We want to promote freedom of expression, an open internet, access to affordable communications tools and creative works. They might be concerned about a deal of this kind uh, because when you reduce the amount of people that are accessing that internet, using their cloud servers or what have you, then perhaps that is the kind of thing that comes up on their radar. They are a little bit more attenuated from the deal at hand. Now, I did mention we were going to talk about the Communications Workers of America and why this is at least a little bit odd. Now, we probably here in Virtual Legality, if you've watched this video and this playlist, uh, know the CWA are the ones that are trying to unionize Activision. They were the ones that helped them with the National Labor Relations Board. They're the ones that helped pass out the signature cards, which we haven't heard from again except with respect to the quality assurance folks at Raven. So that's an interesting part of the story. But you can see from the CWA's own statements that they are otherwise interested in unionizing Activision workers because they're unhappy with the way Activision workers are treated at Activision. So when we talk about them signing up to a letter that says, hey, you should think about this deal further, and we're going to get to the specifics in just a minute, That strikes me as at least a little bit odd because the actual effect of that kind of thinking is the FTC blocks the deal and you've locked the the folks that you are ostensibly representing in a place that you think is bad for them, right? One of the reasons I think people got excited about the concept of Microsoft purchasing Activision, uh, rightly or wrongly, is that they thought, hey, if Activision is such a bad place to work, then Phil Spencer and company over at Microsoft can clean things up and give developers a workplace that they are potentially happier with. Never a guarantee. You shouldn't assume that will necessarily happen at Microsoft, but certainly the status quo appears to have had significant negatives for the workers at Activision Blizzard. Here, the Communication Workers of America, again, self-interested as they have every right to be, look at the situation and say, hey, we've got some amount of traction unionizing the folks at Activision, primarily because Activision is apparently a bad place to work and their message is being heard by some Activision Blizzard workers. And if everything changes, then we're going to lose that traction. They also have some sharp words from Microsoft in the letter that we will see as well. But it just strikes me as very interesting. Yes, CWA wants more union members. That's how their organization functions. They get paid their dues. They represent them. That might well be good for certain workplaces. But at the end of the day, their messaging really has to be, we want the workers to be in the best position possible. And if Activision Blizzard isn't that, it just comes across as very, very interesting for them to be signed up to a letter that says, maybe you should stop this deal, FTC, at least 
between the lines. Then we have some right to repair folks with uh, repair.org. And this is about right to repair. This is about fixing things, your computers, your cell phones, uh, your motors, whatever it might be. It's simple. You bought it. You should own it, period. Our goal is to advocate for repair-friendly policies, regulations, statutes, and standards at the national, state, and local levels. Now, you might ask yourself, what in the world does that have to do with this deal? And I can't give you a great answer, at least not from the FTC's perspective. But we will see right to repair brought up in this letter. So to bring the repair folks on board and into this consortium that signed the letter, seems like that paragraph was necessary. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Now, now we can talk about the substance of the letter itself. First, we see the headline. The FTC must investigate Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard. Groups ask the FTC to closely check deal for anti-competitive effects. Now, as I said earlier in this video, I'm, I'm going to call a lot of this silly. One of the silliest parts here is the lightness with which this request is made. If you've been here with us for a while, you know that this request doesn't matter at all. Why? Because the FTC is already doing that. Under the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act, the FTC and the Department of Justice review most of the proposed transactions that affect commerce in the United States and are over a certain size, and either agency can take legal action to block deals that it believes would substantially lessen competition. Although there are some exceptions, for the most part, current law requires companies to report any deal that is valued at more than $101 million to the agency so that they can be reviewed. And we've talked about this process a lot in this playlist and certainly on this channel, so we won't go too deeply into it, but suffice it to say, If the 30-day window doesn't pass and the FTC asks for more information, you find yourself in the second look, second request, second view, whatever you want to call it, window, and that's when the FTC asks for more information. And that's when you get elongated to months and months of changing documents and figuring out whether there needs to be a settlement, etc. And I will tell you this, as you've seen in this playlist itself, we already know, We don't know specifically, but we already know on the way Microsoft is acting, Activision at risk, a close reading of Microsoft's PR promises, that the FTC is going to take a second look, has already told them we need more information. This is going to be a longer process than just that 30-day window because this is one of the biggest deals in an industry's history. The FTC was always going to do that, which means that once you're in that second look period, the FTC is taking a close look at the deal and Microsoft and Activision and everything else. So the very headline that you used is already being done. And the main request, the first sentence of your letter is already being done as well. The undersigned organizations ask that the Federal Trade Commission closely scrutinize Microsoft's intended purchase of Activision Blizzard, which we're going to call Activision throughout this letter. And that's all well and good because that is their ask. That is the headline. But what they really want to say is here's a list of things you might not have known about, you might not be thinking about with respect to this deal. But that in and of itself can also be silly. Because the FTC doesn't have unilateral power to decide this on any access that it wants. The real politic is maybe it can, depending on how the FTC wants to act behind closed doors. But from a legal perspective, when we look at Section 7 of the Clayton Act, as we have before, the FTC and the Department of Justice gain their power in terms of this review from figuring out whether a proposed acquisition may have the effect of substantially lessening competition or tending to create a monopoly. That's what the FTC has to wield against Microsoft. That's what the DOJ would if they were the agency looking at this. And they can't just decide this kind of concept 
on literally any grounds that they want to. Again, the real politic is the FTC, of course, in their own minds and behind the scenes can decide it on those facts, but they have to make the case that the deal itself would be substantially less than competition or otherwise having the tendency to create a monopoly. Now, let's talk about the substance of the letter a little bit further. Microsoft's buyout of a structurally important gaming developer and publisher, when viewed with its current and pending holdings, raise serious competition issues for the video game sector. So these are the arguments that I warned you would be made to the FTC, that the FTC might well find to be substantial enough to cause trouble for Microsoft. And they are being made now by outside advocacy organizations that don't have the direct interest that we can just discount entirely. Right? Yes, we can point out, A, they're against all acquisitions. Yes, they would be advantaged by not allowing Microsoft to grow bigger in this instance, et cetera, et cetera. But they aren't the kinds of groups that we can just say, they're going to come out and say this kind of thing, and they don't know video games or what have you. And so when you talk about this issue, when we talk about politics, when we talk about people running agencies, it's important to note that while this won't change the FTC's ultimate determination on these kinds of things, they can be influenced by them. Right? This letter speaks the language that we have heard Lena Khan use at the FTC. This speaks the language of the Biden administration's executive order. It is designed to say this is the kind of thing that you are being told to take action on. We believe that the transaction may lead to an undue concentration of market power when viewed as a vertical or horizontal merger, threaten data privacy and security, undermine consumer protection online, impinge on the consumer right to repair, and exacerbate worker disempowerment and wage suppression. Now, only some of that is what the FTC is supposed to look at. More specifically, only the concentration of market power and the tendency to create a monopoly or reduce competition is what the FTC is specifically charged with looking at but they're human beings. And so if you can put a laundry list of potentially negative things that happen out of this kind of deal, you might have some success. And that's what this group is trying to do. The FTC ought to closely investigate the potential move as a vertical merger, meaning a merger that involves making your vertical chain of distribution longer or otherwise more protected against potential competitors. Or as this letter frames it, the company's status as a major hardware producer, platform provider, and distributor raises the question of whether the acquisition of a sizable segment of the game publishing market will diminish competition. Gamers are already raising concerns that the merger will result in popular games becoming exclusive to Microsoft hardware, which I have to sit here and point out, as many of you know, is something that Microsoft is fully within its rights to do, and certainly is within the rights of any operator in the gaming industry to sign exclusives for money. This is just that writ larger. This is just that bigger. Uh, and so these sentences don't come across as terribly strong, but they're putting every argument they can put forth forth. The advent of streaming games and Microsoft's existing cloud infrastructure offers further opportunities for the corporation to stamp out smaller market participants through anti-competitive conduct. Now, I highlighted that in orange, setting it off from the other sentences, but also to point out that this was exactly the avenue of attack that I thought was the most likely to potentially succeed at the FTC level. It's not about being the third biggest gaming operator. It's not about the fact that we purchased just any random developer of games. This isn't the same as Sony buying Bungie. This is about a major publisher of some of the most successful titles across all sorts of sectors combined 
with the success that Microsoft has had with Game Pass and on the technology side with the success that they've had with Azure and their cloud services in general. That if you're going to attack this deal, you attack it as Microsoft on the whole, not just talking about gaming as some kind of metaphysical construct. You see that here. Uh, and I think that is the most likely to find success with the FTC, if any of this were to find success with the FTC. By absorbing another major gaming studio and publisher, Microsoft will grow its ability to control content and self-preference its own at the expense of market competitors. Now, that sentence is also important because they're trying to put Microsoft in the Amazon Google bucket. Right, Microsoft is not right now actually in the list of enemies of the state, top targets for antitrust enforcement. Those are mostly reserved for Google search bars and Apple things and Amazon. And they often involve self-preferencing. They often involve the concept that you've built this thing and you've also built products to go along with it. And now you're gonna do these various things to advantage yourself. And this sentence is saying, this is what Microsoft is building. Effectively, behind the scenes, between the lines, you're saying, you missed it with Google. You missed it with some of the other things. You missed it with Facebook. Heck, you're suing Facebook right now because you missed it so badly years ago. You can have the opportunity to stop it before it starts here with Microsoft. These guys know what they're doing. They are speaking the FTC's language. The Microsoft Activision deal may constitute anti-competitive conduct as a horizontal merger. In fact, that's what I said in my video when folks were telling IGN that it would only be a vertical merger. There's no way you can just treat it as a vertical merger because of the nature of Microsoft publishing games already. If the FTC clears this merger, Microsoft will become the third largest gaming company in the world. The gaming industry, as the commission is aware, has now outstripped revenues from the global film and U.S. sports business combined. Again, things that are potentially damning, but actually not so. The fact that gaming is more important or bigger in terms of revenue than film and sports doesn't actually matter that much. In fact, you could make the argument that that's a bad sentence because you're talking about how big entertainment is, that film is effectively a competitor to gaming, is a competitor to sports, is a competitor to whatever else you might be doing for your leisure time and your entertainment. But in this context that they presented in, it sounds like, hey, they're going to take a big spot in a big industry, and so you should pay attention to this more. The proposed merger fits an alarming pattern of concentration in the gaming industry over the past several years, and Microsoft's expanding role in the gaming market may result in the company using its leverage to raise subscription prices and limit options, among other possible consumer harms. And again, this goes back to the Game Pass side of things, right? If you can frame this as a Game Pass subscription service, cloud streaming, Azure, whatever else, market monopoly, a reduction in the concentration of power and taking Call of Duty and making sure it never appears on Spartacus or Stadia or whatever else that you think that you're fighting from Microsoft's level, then the natural way that you get the FTC to think about it and potentially have the FTC act is say, well, if they succeed at that, they're going to pop the prices. Yeah, it's $15 now. What happens when it's 30 and it's the only place that you can get Call of Duty or the only place you can get something else that you want? And by Keeping those there, you killed Spartacus before it could ever start, what have you. Those are the arguments you make, and I know a lot of you don't find them very uh, persuasive. I don't tend to find them very persuasive, but we have to understand these are the arguments that are being made and that someone at the FTC might. Microsoft's planned growth in the gaming industry implicates concerns related to data privacy and surveillance advertising. Microsoft's proposed acquisition of programmatic surveillance data marketing company Xander from AT&T will further expand its ability to track and target its users. Now, that's a different deal. So you now have to tie this to Activision, who makes video games, as far as I know. And they try to at the end of this paragraph. We're in the data section now. 
the FTC should closely analyze the data privacy dimensions of Microsoft's planned purchase of Activision, including the use of AI, influencers, neuromarketing, and other practices now used for its gaming operations. In addition to concern about data privacy, the FTC should examine the consolidation of user and developer data that may result from this merger and consider to what extent it may have anti-competitive effects. They try to circle back around, right? This is one of the advocacy groups that is specifically concerned with data privacy, totally within their rights to be concerned about that, trying to tie it to a question about whether a merger should be blocked for reducing competition. So the middle section of this paragraph, and we'll see this again in some of the other paragraphs, don't really speak to what the FTC should be concerned about. Then you say, well, maybe it's not privacy that's an issue because the rights are being transferred around properly, but just having one body control even more data might give them essentially anti-competitive benefits that could otherwise cause problems in the marketplace itself. So this is highly speculative. Uh, but again, if you're public citizen, if you're whoever is leading this group to try to put a letter like this together, you're trying to get all these people happy with the various paragraphs you put in. And this is trying to say, hey, maybe data is bad. And let's talk about this other deal that apparently got let through from Microsoft. Microsoft's buying companies literally like every month. Uh, and we only cover the handful that touch on video gaming. This merger could strengthen Microsoft's power to impinge on consumers' right to repair their own video game equipment. Microsoft has continued to lobby hard against right to repair legislation affecting video game consoles. Microsoft has refused to make available to consumers or independent repair shops uh, locked software with respect to the motherboard and their optical drive. Although the Librarian of Congress granted a video game console optical drive repair exemption to Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, it's the DMCA to you and I, it has limitations in that it did not legalize reverse engineering the software pairing tool, which Microsoft keeps proprietary, and did not extend to video game consoles without optical drives, which includes most modern consoles. Now, interestingly enough for that sentence, uh, I don't believe that Microsoft sells anything that doesn't use an optical drive in its most modern set. Um, and maybe when they say most modern consoles, they're bringing in the Switch and they're bringing in the PlayStation 5 digital. Uh, but certainly every Xbox that I've ever had has a slot for CDs and Blu-rays uh, and whatnot. Uh, so it is very interesting to see them start to say, well, this all relates to optical drives, which is what you complain about here with respect to motherboards and optical drives, but that modern consoles don't have optical drives. It's kind of circling around itself. And again, when we talk about the substance here, we're talking about uh, a situation that the FTC doesn't necessarily care about, right? The situation here, as argued, is Microsoft hates right to repair. Microsoft lobbies against right to repair. Microsoft having more assets essentially makes their lobbying more effective, something like that. Well, they back off on even that at the end of their paragraph. While blocking this merger may not be sufficient to address concerns about repairability of Xbox devices, better repairability protections would facilitate competition in the adjacent markets of used devices and repair services. This is the, hey, sir, this is a Wendy's kind of argument in the middle of this letter. That That's nice. It's totally fine to advocate for right to repair laws. What does that have to do with Microsoft purchasing Activision? And at the end of the day, you say, eh, nothing. All right. Then we get to the CWA's portion of this. We get to the unionized portion of this. And here things get even maybe a little even wackier. Workers at Activision Blizzard have powerfully mobilized over the past year to shine a light on a workplace culture rife with sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and instances of assault that top management swept under the rug. 
Now, as those workers seek to form a union to address their collective interests, the potential takeover by Microsoft threatens to further undermine workers' rights and suppress wages. So we're already a little bit in front of the game. We have very limited optics as to exactly what the workers of Activision Blizzard are doing here. We have the Raven signature cards. They haven't had an election yet. It's unclear, as we've talked about in this playlist, that they will get certified to even have an election. There's all sorts of confounding characteristics there. There was recently a hearing with the National Labor Relations Board, which I will follow up on when we get some kind of definitive answer from them. The fact that none of Microsoft's U.S.-based employees belong to a union underscores Microsoft's success in preventing its labor force from organizing to protect worker interests. Yeah, so this assertion is that because no one at Microsoft is unionized, it is evidence that Microsoft is succeeding in preventing its labor force from organizing. I don't know that I have to explain to you how specious logically that kind of argument is, but suffice it to say, if we imagined instead that Microsoft just simply gave everybody a million dollars and they were the highest paid workers on earth and everybody got days off all the time and they were just the happiest clams ever that existed, you would understand why they didn't otherwise unionize and it wouldn't involve Microsoft suppression necessarily. Now we know from the reality of the situation, Microsoft doesn't want to be a unionized environment uh, and they take steps to ensure that, whether it's contract workers or otherwise, uh, but the very fact that nobody is unionized at Microsoft really doesn't speak to how Microsoft is operating on that score. The impact extends beyond its own labor force. Game designers will have fewer potential employers and independent developers will have fewer partners competing for their work, suppressing wages and innovation. Now, that's actually pretty close to one of the arguments that I made in an earlier video, which is if you're going to do something at the FTC level on the Game Pass side, you might suggest that Microsoft could create some kind of monopsony buyer situation that independent developers maybe should be concerned if that's the only way that they can really get their game out there, that if Game Pass crushes Spartacus or crushes other aspects of the gaming industry, then if they're the only buyer, well, the deal terms start to change. That isn't actually directly addressing a labor issue. That's a monopsony kind of concept, uh, but fair enough. The prevalence of high labor market concentration across the economy has resulted in wage depression below levels that would prevail under competitive conditions. I, again, where is this coming from? How is it directly related to Microsoft? How is it related to Microsoft times Activision? This is just an overall assertion that something is wrong in the market and we would be getting paid more if X, Y, and Z. Meanwhile, workers face massive employer resistance to their attempts to exercise countervailing power through collective bargaining. Regulators increasingly recognize that in cases where mergers will worsen labor monopsony and constrain the elasticity of labor supply, Transactions that harm labor cannot be justified by their potential benefits to downstream purchasers in the form of lower prices. Now, this is an assertion again, speaking to the FTC at where they live. This is actually an assertion that says you need to care more about the wages and labor value than the consumer value, the value to the end user. And as we've talked about in general, and I trust, including Hart Scott Rudino, including the Clayton Act, have primarily until now and potentially continuing, but we'll see, been focused on how this will affect the end line consumer. That the best way to look at whether or not something is anti-competitive is how does it affect the quality, availability, price to the person that the product or service is being sold to. And that we aren't in the business in the United States of making sure that every competitor is happy, that every vendor is happy, that every uh, inter 
operating part of getting a product or service out to those consumers is happy, what we're overall concerned with is a competitive environment that results in higher quality, better supply, and lower prices to the folks that are actually purchasing those products or services. Here is an advocacy of what we are increasingly seeing from folks talking about antitrust legislation and regulation right now, which is no, you shouldn't just be focused on the consumer welfare standard. You should be focused on stakeholder standards. Uh, And again, this is a philosophical position. I tend to disagree here because it gets the government into picking winners and losers in a way that I think is a very easy, slippery slope to fall down. But certainly it is the philosophy that we're seeing espoused in certain corners. And this letter is well-written to speak to the FTC with some of the language uh, that they already are thinking about. In addition to traditional concentration analysis for both upstream and downstream markets, the FTC should examine direct evidence of the company's current and potential exercise of market power over workers in the form of restrictive contracts and other means of denying workers the ability to exercise their rights. Uh, And so this is essentially uh, an anti-Microsoft paragraph, right? And this is CWA's paragraph. And again, it just strikes me as so bizarre, right? The only thing this letter is ever going to ask for is the FTC to look at things which they're already doing and look at them closely, which they're already doing. But the between the lines analysis is the FTC should consider killing this deal. And the CWA is essentially sitting here and saying they should consider killing this deal. Keep the employees at Activision with their current management structure because Microsoft is so big and bad and evil. Microsoft uses non-competes and non-disclosure agreements. Microsoft pushes down on prices, and nobody's unionized at Microsoft FTC. So that should be taken into consideration as well. Leave the workers at Activision Blizzard. Let us get them in our union, and we'll take care of them. And that just seems so strange for what should be the advocacy of the well-being of the people at Activision Blizzard and potentially change in management, helping underscore that particular issue. But again, CWA, self-interested, like everybody else, that's totally fine. Uh, And that's how this comes out in these kinds of letters. And we do see the language that the FTC is expecting and probably sympathetic to as part of this document. Finally, Microsoft has a market capitalization of over $2 trillion and is an extremely large business operating in several concentrated sectors of the economy, including but not limited to Consumer electronics, cloud computing, software development, hardware development, internet search, social networking, virtual reality, and video gaming. It's technically virtual and augmented reality. They're really more in augmented right now. (laughs) The gaming industry appears to be experiencing a wave of concentration at an increasingly rapid pace. Microsoft's acquisition of Activision would be a record-breaking watershed move that sets the future course of the gaming industry. We strongly urge the FTC to undertake a searching examination of the deal with an eye towards ensuring open, fair, and competitive markets. And again, the only reason you write this is to say, FTC, you should really think about blocking this deal. Uh, And the size of Microsoft, pertinent overall, very, very big company. But more importantly, as I see it, is this list of all the things that Microsoft is involved in. These are all essentially off-ramps that the FTC could use if they wanted to, to say it's not the gaming industry that's the market. Nobody realistically says Microsoft is moving into a monopoly position with the purchase of Activision. Instead, it's gaming plus. It's gaming plus electronics. It's gaming plus cloud computing. It's gaming plus Game Pass and subscription services as a product line unto itself. It's gaming plus whatever it is. And so here you have this group putting together a group of things that the FTC could use if it wanted to. And so I look at this letter and I find it pretty silly uh, because the FTC is, of course, only ever doing this already. But I also find it 
pretty effective insofar as what we can glean that the FTC would care about from their public facing statements. This is aimed right at the heart of why the FTC might elect to move against Microsoft. And it's aimed right at the heart of why I keep telling you that the deal going through in substantially the form that we saw it announced is 80-20 and not 99-1, not 100-0, not 90-10 even. It's because you do have groups that for whatever reason aligned, whether or not it makes sense for the Hart Scott Redito Act or Clayton Section 7 or anything else, want to see the FTC more aggressively wield its rights and regulations and abilities to block deals of all kinds. And Microsoft Activision is right now in the position to be the one that they wield those rights and that hammer against. Regardless of how you feel about video gaming in general, Microsoft might not be the entity that the Federal Trade Commission wants to aim these weapons at. They would ideally have Apple in front of them or Google or someone like that, but they might well be the company that's available to them and could signal the FTC and the Biden administration's push towards more aggressive use of antitrust laws and an understanding of what that even means. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy a conversation about the business and law of pop culture, video games, technology, and other things that you and I both enjoy, please consider supporting the channel. We cannot do it without support from viewers and listeners like you. We've got a Patreon. We're going to have a new avenue of supporting the channel very, very soon, probably next week. Uh, And I will have a video probably announcing that that you can check out if you're not comfortable with Patreon. We have other ways to support the channel also listed down below. Otherwise, just subscribing ringing bells, upvoting, downvoting, sharing it on Reddit, Twitter, forums, wherever you find yourselves in, every little bit helps. And as that subscriber number grows, YouTube pays more attention to us, gets it out to more people, and it's a snowball effect that very much helps the entirety of the channel. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.